morning's New Testament reading is from John 16, verses 1 to 14. Jesus is speaking of his disciples. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. I got to adjust my microphone. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan. I serve as uh, one of the elders and pastoral interns here at Grace Downtown. It's a real privilege to uh, be with you all again tonight. I don't know if there's anything I could say that is. Uh, songs we've been singing, but let's go ahead anyway, and uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we ask that you would send your spirit into this midst. God, we, uh, we need you now. We need him to open up our eyes. We need him just as Jesus promised to send him. So Lord, would you bless this time, open up the words of life that you have for us. So for those of you who have uh, been with us for most of this summer, you'll know that we've been, uh, we just finished up actually a series on the book of Titus, and then next week we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Acts together, which is going to run through the fall, but we have this, uh, this little in-between week this week. So I thought what we would uh, do together is explore this passage in John 16 where Jesus prepares his followers for these days of the early church for us in the book of Acts, this account of the, the first generation of the church after Christ completes his ministry. So we'll, we'll be thinking about the questions, how does Jesus prepare them for his departure? What does he have to teach them about 
the future of his ministry? What is the lasting impact of his time with them? You know, this idea kind of reminds me of uh, one of my favorite books, which is the novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And Gilead is a, a novel where the narrator is this old uh, preacher in Iowa who has a, a son late in life who finds out that he has a heart condition that means he will likely lose his life while his son is still young. So he decides to write this uh, series of letters which make up the book, these letters to his son that he hopes he will read after he is gone as a way to, to, to tell him about his own life and to teach him things that he doesn't think that he will be able to teach him someday. We see so much love in this book for his son and for his wife. I think, you know, for my own self, part of why I love it so much is my own cultural background. He sounds so much like my grandfather, who I love dearly, when he speaks and when he writes. So we see the love that he has for his family, but we also see things like his, um, the importance of just ordinary moments that he's had in his life, the importance of a, a piece of bread or a, a laughter and play with a young child, the beauty of the Iowa prairie never thought was that beautiful, but he finds beauty in it. These are the things that he wants his son to know about him and about his life. This is how he is preparing his son to live after he is gone. These memories and this knowledge that his father has given him. And you know, this is a part of Jesus's ministry that I don't think we think about very often. We think of Jesus' ministry, or when we think of Jesus' ministry, I know for me, we automatically go to, you know, something like the miracles or the mighty works that he did, or maybe his teaching and his sermons, or maybe you think of his parables, these wonderful stories that he tells with the rich meaning behind them, these little nuggets of wisdom that we have to dig for in those stories. But a huge part of Jesus's ministry, according to him, actually, was preparing people for what would come after him. Everything that he did and said that we have recorded in the Gospels wasn't just meant for this isolated period of history. It wasn't just meant for the people who were immediately around him and who were listening to him. His ministry is oriented towards the present. He actually did become a human being who in his human nature thought like a Jew from Galilee in the first century, who walked among his people, who made friends. But also see his desire for the future church in his ministry and in his teaching. What he does and what he says is meant for us too. In Jesus' view, we actually, according to what he says here, we actually have an advantage over the people who are listening to him in the flesh. How could that be? The answer is the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed, which is one of the uh, earliest statements of what Christians believe, really from just a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus. It uh, describes this uniquely Christian uh, idea of God as trinity, of three persons, but one being. And when the creed describes the Holy Spirit, the third person of the trinity describes him very simply. It says this, he is the Lord, the giver of life. The Lord, the giver of life. This is one of the ways that we see 
the spirit active in scripture, we, we sung about it in one of our songs, that he breathes life into the world. We see him breathing life into the first human beings that were created at the beginning of Genesis. And then throughout the pages of scripture, we also see this uh, spectrum of the work of the spirit, where on the one hand, he does these really mighty and powerful things like leading the people of Israel through the wilderness as this cloud, this pillar of smoke and fire. But then on the other hand, we see these really intimate, personal moments when he speaks to the prophet Elijah, who is out in the wilderness in despair, and it says the spirit comes to him in a whisper. That's how he sees God's presence. So we see this uh, spectrum of the way that the spirit works. And anywhere that you see God working in scripture, the spirit is there at work. But then in the time after Christ, in the time highlighted by the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit really becomes the main character of the story, if you will. And so when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he does so by promising them and teaching them about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at three things together tonight in the time that we have. Preparation for the Spirit presence of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit. First thing that Jesus makes clear to his followers in this passage that we read tonight is that hard times are coming for them. And Jesus speaks to us as somebody who was intimately familiar with the suffering that goes along with being put out by your community and rejected by those who you see as your own. The audience for uh, his teaching in this passage is his disciples. These are his closest friends and followers, the ones who have stuck with him almost until the end, the people who are most dear to him. And Jesus knows that if they continue on living after he is gone, according to what he has been teaching them, that the same fate awaits them as awaits him, what following him faithfully is going to look like for them. And the disciples are a little bit confused at this point. This is a long section of teaching that we've come into the middle of uh, in our passage tonight. Jesus has been promising them throughout his time on earth that he had come to establish a kingdom. But now they come towards the end and he's talking about going away and it doesn't really feel like there's much of a kingdom when they look around. So they're confused. They're also afraid and sorrowful going to be okay when Jesus leaves. If Jesus goes away, does that mean that they did something wrong? Are they not going to see Jesus anymore because they won't believe in him? But while Jesus is warning them of what's to come, he takes this moment to comfort them. Because when this suffering comes, remember what I taught you. This is the way that the, the followers of Christ can approach suffering in our lives can look both forwards and backwards. Throughout the rest of this passage, Jesus promises them the gracious presence of the Spirit with them as they suffer, which we'll talk more about. But in these first few verses, what he's emphasizing for them is the sufficiency of what he has taught them. He makes this really bold claim here, actually, that when you are faced with impending death, with suffering to its absolute limits, your people and your families and your communities 
throw you out and then believe that they are justified in killing you. He says, what I've done for you is enough. My ministry and what I came to do and what I came to teach is enough to bear you through even the hardest circumstances. We see a little bit of the fatherly love that Jesus has for his people here. Doesn't this sound like the goal of parenting for a lot of us, right? To be able to prepare our kids for anything that life might throw at them once they leave the house. I remember these times in my uh, young adult life where, um, you know, some of the things that annoyed me or frustrated me about my parents all of a sudden started to make more sense now that I wasn't living with them anymore and their rules and their guidance. I started to see the wisdom in when I was out on my own. And you see Jesus loving his disciples here as if they were his own children, wanting them to be ready for whatever might come in the future. He gives us everything that we need to, pre to prepare us for suffering through the hardest times. It's an incredible thing that he offers his people here. If we could just adequately grasp and internalize the good news that he has for us, we can be prepared for anything says it again later in verse 12, he cannot tell them everything that is going to happen, but he has said everything that is needed for them when the time comes. This is the promise for them as they look ahead to the future that Jesus is talking about. He prepares them for the future by assuring them of what he has already done for them. But we need the spirit in order for Jesus's teaching to actually have any significance for us. We need the spirit, the, the giver of life, to make the words of Jesus come alive for us. Everything that Jesus did and said is of no value unless we have the spirit. So the key in Jesus' mind to preparing his people for the age to come is to tell them about the spirit. So let's move on now to our second point and consider what Jesus is teaching about the presence of the spirit. Now, we read uh, the first few verses from Isaiah 61 earlier on in this service. Uh, this is actually a, pe uh, a passage that Jesus quotes himself when he is inaugurating his own ministry. At the very beginning of his ministry, in Luke 4, he stands up in the synagogue, and before the congregation of all the people, he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he opens it, and he reads these words. And then he has the audacity to say that, Today, this scripture is fulfilled for you in your presence. Obviously, it you know, gets him in a little bit of trouble, as you can imagine. But what's important for us is that the Spirit has been active in Jesus' ministry all along. This isn't a new thing. This isn't something that Jesus is creating. He has relied on the Spirit each and every day. He has communed with the Spirit, spent time in prayer with the Spirit, listened prompting of the Spirit in his own ministry. So it's not something new, but the Spirit will be unleashed after he departs from them. He will come upon his people in a new way. In verse 7, Jesus says that when he goes, he will send the helper to them. This is a, the title that he gives to the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of those cases where um, it's hard to come up with one English word that really captures the word that John is using here. 
uh, in the Greek. So you'll sometimes see this translated as comforter or helper or advocate or counselor, or sometimes uh, translations just won't even bother to translate it. They'll say the paraclete is the Greek word that is used here. And these all touch on kind of different ways that the spirit is present in our lives as a counselor, as one who defends us against accusations, as one who guides and helps us. And what Jesus is promising here is that his mission on earth doesn't end when his earthly ministry ends. When Jesus is no longer physically present with his people, his mission will continue through the presence of the Spirit. The full value of what he's been teaching won't even become clear until his followers have the Spirit, or much later. People will continue to be convicted of sin and come to belief in Christ in the age of the Spirit. They will continue to see the righteousness of God, even though Jesus has ascended into heaven to be with the Father. When the devil whispers accusations and temptations into our ears, the Spirit will still be there to defend us, to judge the one who is trying to accuse you. The kingdom of Jesus will continue on, overpowering the ruler of this world who stands condemned. There's power in the presence of the Spirit. This is our last point, the power of the Spirit. Those of you who are fans of theater, I want you to uh, imagine a scenario with me. You get uh, tickets to this new show on Broadway that you're really excited about. Uh, it's a show you've been looking forward to. And you take a long weekend to go up to New York. And uh, the night of the show, you get to the theater a little bit early. You take your seats. Then there's this uh, announcement over the loudspeaker. It says, deepest apologies, everyone. The lead actor in tonight's show has actually come down with the flu won't be able to be with us. The lead actor who sings the big climactic number at the end of the musical will not be with you. But there is an understudy who's here and who's prepared, and so the show will go on. Now, obviously, you're a little disappointed. You stay for the show. You still enjoy it. The understudy does a good job. You still love the music and the story. But you probably leave the theater with this feeling that you didn't quite get the full experience. The show was good, but it could have been better. I think it's tempting for some of us to think about the Holy Spirit as like Jesus' understudy. Having the Spirit, you know, gets the job done. It's still really good to have the Spirit. But Jesus, like that's what it's really about. Jesus wants you to know that there is power in the presence of the Spirit Actually, so much so that it's better for you to have the spirit than to have the physical presence of Jesus. The ministry of the spirit will have all of the power of Jesus' earthly ministry and then some on top of that. Why is it better? How could it be better? But the disciples are starting to get a, a glimpse of at this time that they don't totally understand yet. That Jesus is about to uh, submit to death and only a few days he's going to be arrested and convicted and sentenced to death because of the way that he has been teaching people, the words that he's saying about himself. When the world around him thinks that this is just another strange teacher whose influence has been swallowed up by the grave, and when his closest friends are filled with doubt about everything that they've gone through in the last three years, 
It's at that time that he is about to reveal the power of God in a way that no one could have dreamed of. The death of Jesus isn't the end, but it's merely the beginning. Because when the Son of God was put to death, he took the sin of the world with him into the grave. And then when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he left your sin behind in that empty grave. Along with all of your shame and your guilt that goes along with it. The Spirit has always been at work, but look at the power that he has now. Once Jesus had died and risen from the dead, the Spirit now has the power to apply what he has done, the work of Christ, to the hearts and the minds of people. And as we get to the, the book of Acts, what we're going to see is just an avalanche of the power of the Spirit. Not because he's somehow better than Jesus, but because the Spirit was so closely united to the resurrected Jesus, more so than we can ever comprehend. And the power of the Spirit in union with that resurrected Jesus is unstoppable. Disciples who thought that they understood everything that Jesus was teaching them, they're opened up to this whole new vision of what it means to be a follower of Christ, what that means for them. The, the limitations that Jesus took upon himself in his ministry in order to become truly human in every way are gone. The whole earth has become his ministry field through the work of the Spirit. And with Christ on his throne in glory, the Spirit has the power to unite seemingly weak and insignificant and sinful people with the ascended Jesus Christ in heaven. And the domino effects of this salvation are going on all over the place. You know, in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit saving people by the thousands, but we also see the Spirit working in the church to be radically generous so that nobody is experiencing need. It takes the, the power of the Spirit to unite people across different cultures and ethnicities into one common community of believers. It takes the power of the Spirit to convict people of their sin. All these things and more are part of the mission of the Spirit. Now, if you're, uh, if you're here visiting with us tonight and Christianity is very new to you and you don't know much of what I'm talking about, about Jesus or the Spirit, it all probably sounds very strange and mysterious. Let's talk about a spirit who's like somehow God, but also he's somehow his own person. And somehow he's also connected to Jesus, who used to be alive, and then he died, but he's not dead anymore. How does this all work in people's lives? First of all, I want to say that I agree with you. It all is very strange. Christians do believe some very strange things. But secondly, I would say that I don't think it should surprise us that who God is and how he works in the world is actually a little bit strange to us. We would have to have a, uh, a really high view of ourselves to think that there is a God who is actually worthy of us paying attention to and that um, is worthy of us paying attention to, who's worthy of even being worshipped and that I could come to the right conclusions about him on my own in a way that it wouldn't surprise me. No, God has to reveal himself. It's going to sound a little strange to our culturally contingent ways of thinking. But then thirdly, I would say that the, uh, that the strangeness is actually a really beautiful thing. 
takes something strange to make everyday things come alive and have eternal significance. That's exactly what the work of Jesus Christ through the Spirit does. It endows ordinary, normal things with extraordinary significance. This is one of the ways that I want to uh, encourage us as a church as we embark on this study of Acts together this fall. I think it's easy to read through Acts and to get um, caught up in all the miracles that are going to take place and all the amazing signs and wonders that happen, the healings, the speaking in tongues, all these strange things. And these are important, but the power of the Spirit is on display all over the place, not just in these miracles. Miracles were never an end in and of themselves. When the Spirit displays his power in a miracle, he's trying to teach us about the incredible and unbelievable power that it took to save us. We sometimes think that forgiving people is easy, but healing someone, that's really hard. But we have it backwards in here. If we train ourselves to only see the Spirit working through miracles, we're going to miss the vast majority of what he's doing, what he has done, what he continues to do. Every time somebody confesses their sin and somebody forgives them, that's the work of the Spirit. That's the amazing power of the Spirit. Every time one of our children says the words, Jesus loves me, that's the amazing power of the Spirit. Every time, you know, Glenn or Mike or Andrew gets up here and preaches something true about the gospel that really clicks for you, that's the work of the Spirit. Every time we, we take this table, every single week, that's the power of the Spirit uniting us with our Lord. Every time we experience the, the deep and I sometimes find mysterious closeness of friendship, that's the power of the Spirit. Every time you pray this really simple thing, the power of the Spirit, making your words known to God in heaven. Every time we gather in worship in spite of all that should be dividing us, that's the power of the Spirit. If y'all aren't hearing the Spirit when Cheryl, uh, when Cheryl plays the piano, you're, you're listening to different music. Yeah. The, the power of the, the Spirit is all over the place. There's this um, theologian and writer named Mike Horton who's been really influential for me as I think about the spirit. And uh, he says that when we train ourselves to start seeing, to start seeing the Holy Spirit in creation and in our lives, it's like the world is sprinkled with magic dust. The world glistens with the power of the spirit. My prayer for us tonight and in the weeks ahead is that the spirit would breathe life into us through the words of Jesus, through our prayers through our relationships, through our worship, that we would start to see not only the, the mighty and powerful work of the Spirit in offering us such a great salvation, but also in the personal work, the intimate work of the Spirit each and every day in our own lives and in all contexts that we meet. That's my prayer for us. Will you all pray with me as we close together? Spirit, we do thank you for your work so often overlooked and mysterious to us. I pray that you would make it known, that we would see it, that we would love you all the more, give the glory due to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for
for sending your son on our behalf, for making all of this possible, for making it possible to experience the power of our great advocate and helper. Lord, we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.